It's 22 years after September 11th. The world keeps turning, but the memories never fade. As we sit here today in 2023, with debates over Ukraine, China, Iran, Israel, Afghanistan, and more, we're joined by someone who's been at the center of major foreign policy decisions for nearly half a century. Joining us this week in a special Rosh Hashanah edition, President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Richard Haas. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast, Rosh Hashanah edition. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Get out your apples and your honey, friends. It is that time of year. A good new year, a sweet new year. I can't get out of my head. The three-year-old keeps singing it. I mean, <laughs> it's it's just well, there. And now it's there for everyone. Yes, exactly. Just now go, on, gonna just go on playback you. over and over and over again. And if you want the single, I'll be releasing it after Yom Kippur. <laughs> Jared, you have uh, big traditions in your house for Rosh Hashanah? Uh, Well, you know, we're going to be out on Fire Island for Rosh Hashanah. It's a really peaceful place uh, to be. We're really fortunate to be out there. Um, And uh, we just, we like to eat a lot and spend time with family and, and, you know, go for nice long walks in a pretty quiet place. And uh, yeah, that's what we'll be doing. How about you? I like doing what they call in Hebrew simanim. These are signs. These are the symbols on the table that, that you have and you say special blessings over, you know, the fish head. Obviously, everybody knows the the apple and the honey, but there's other cool stuff if you uh, get yourself uh, a good prayer book that, that has it all in there or go online uh, and get yourself all the accoutrements uh, before your Rosh Hashanah meal. Uh, but there is something fun about getting dressed up and entering a new year and the theology uh, behind, you know, sort of feeling very confident that we have done our best, we are being cleansed, we are going into a brand new year with a, with a clean slate, which means whether you're in politics, you're in policy, you're in business, everything is in front of you. Bad things are behind you, good things are in front of you, and if you maintain that sort of positivity in your life with your family and friends and, and your relationship with God... Anything is doable right at that moment. So that's what I like about Rosh Hashanah. Indeed, indeed. All right, Rich, let's get to our guest. Let's do it. Let's do it. Dr. Richard Haas, President Emeritus now of the Council on Foreign Relations. You've probably seen him on TV in the past. Previously served as CFR's president for 20 years. From 2001 to 2003, was Director of Policy Planning for the Department of State, Principal Advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell, He would later become, with the rank of ambassador, coordinator for policy towards the future of Afghanistan and an envoy to the Northern Ireland peace process. In 1989 to 1993, he was special assistant to President George H.W. Bush, senior director for the Near East and South Asian Affairs on the National Security Council, played a very uh, big role in the first uh, Gulf War uh, back then. Uh, And before, he was working uh, for President Bush the first. Also, obviously, having worked for President Bush II, he was at the State Department, Defense Department, and in the U.S. Senate. He is a Rhodes Scholar. The list goes on, numerous books. And importantly for Jared, born in Brooklyn, we'll have to ask about that, born in Brooklyn, lives in New York City. Dr. Richard Haas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Dr. Haas, what is it like to be a free man these days? 20 years at the helm of the Council on Foreign Relations, now <laughs> President Emeritus. Uh, you must have uh, more time on your hands. Well, I guess I have two reactions to that. One was when I was at the Council as president for 20 years, I didn't feel unfree, though there are the uh, what comes with running an organization with uh, you know 350 employees and 5,000 members and the rest. So there's a degree of uh, freedom. I, I don't spend... The, my life talking to HR people. That's the big difference between now and uh, and then. But I'm, I'm actually pretty busy. I'm, half of my life is what it, it was, writing and speaking, doing things like this, working on a documentary with PBS. And then the other half of my life just started as a, a count, senior counselor at one of the uh, boutique investment banks. So I'll have a, a business side of my life and I will have uh, the public policy, public conversation side of my life talking about uh, 
either foreign policy issues or democracy issues. So uh, whatever else I may be good at, I am clearly not good at unemployment. (laughs) (laughs) So Richard, let me ask you a question. As I sit here in my uh, home office in Brooklyn, New York, um, you grew up in a Jewish family in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s. To be precise, Jared, I was born in Brooklyn, but grew up in a Jewish family in Valley Stream, Long Island. Oh, Valley Stream. I grew up in in Merrick, Long Island, so I I saw many a movie at the Green Acres Mall. Um, So my first date, by the way, was at the Green Acres Mall. It was a bowling date, and I kid you not, the woman's name was Sharon Stone. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Does that make you a, a Dodgers fan, a Mets fan, or a Yankees fan? I'm not quite sure where that. I'm a Yankees fan because when I was a kid, the Dodgers and the Giants, showing no loyalty whatsoever to the people of New York, decamped to the state out west. So when I came of age, the only team to root for was the Yankees. And by the time the Mets arrived, my loyalties were in cement to the Yankees, which is where the Yankees' chances are this season. <laughs> That, that and the Jets, by the way, at this point. You know, the Jets, by the way, you heard it here first. The Jets, the Jets are going to have a Cinderella season. I actually agree. I think their team is defense and the rest of the team is good enough. The Giants, however, look more like the pumpkin than like Cinderella. <laughs> so, Doc Haas, what about your upbringing in Valley Stream? Um, did you go to Valley Stream South or Valley Stream Central? I went to Valley Stream South. For two years, and then we moved, and I went to Roslyn for four years. So that's okay. uh, my high school, my junior high school, and high school was divided between Valley Stream South and Roslyn. So, what about your upbringing on Long Island uh, got you interested in foreign policy, and really made you sort of one of uh, you are a participant in shaping policy, commenting on policy for the for the last half century, um, and, and sort of what about your upbringing? gave you the bug or, you know, how did this all go down? I would say two things. One is at dinner in our family, we, we were expected to listen and talk. Uh, so, you know, my parents would be there and there was a, it was, there was just a conversation about politics, whatever. And, which brings me to the other point. If you think about it, I came of age in the mid to late 60s. I was born in 51. And the big issue, this was, I was too young for being at the center of the civil rights era. That really came before me. But in the late 60s, the big issue was Vietnam, the war. And then in the early 70s, in addition to that, you also had issues of uh, detente. You had the works of Solzhenitsyn. So U.S.-Soviet relations were center, center stage. U.S.-China relations were with the Nixon-Kissinger visit there. So foreign policy was a really central but also interesting and exciting uh, subject. I guess my, my next question is, you've served in lots of different administrations. Uh, you've, you've served in the, both Bush administrations, if I'm not mistaken. You served in the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, lots of different jobs. So... Which was your favorite job that you had in government and which was your favorite administration, if you're willing to tell us? It's the same. It was the favorite administration was working for George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president, Bush the father. And for four years, I was uh, the Middle East advisor. And the Middle East was defined as what you all of us would call the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, but also India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, also South Asia. I was responsible for that part of the world on the national on the staff of the National Security Council. So I was working with Brent Scowcroft, Bob Gates, President Bush. And during this time, you had, among other things, the uh, Gulf War, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in the summer of 1990. You had the Madrid Peace Conference. You you had all sorts of issues coming together also at the end of the Cold War. So I was working with great people at a pivotal moment in history and a really a job that put me in the room shall we say so that was that was as good as as it gets but i think history will judge him very favorably it's interesting um what he and mr carter have in common is they were both one-term presidents Mm -hmm. 
And I believe that both of their reputations will rise, not because they were one-term presidents, but because they did a lot of good in their, in their one term. Uh, I, I was closest to him also of all the four presidents I, I, I worked for. I wasn't as close to Jimmy Carter, got to know him subsequently. And when I worked for, for, for Ronald Reagan, again, I, I wasn't senior enough. I had some interaction with him, not, not a whole lot. I knew George W. Bush well. And the problem there was uh, not so much that we didn't have interaction. We had quite a bit that we disagreed on some big issues, uh, above all the Iraq war. And that affected, uh, you know, obviously, our relationship. You know, obviously, it affected my, my take on his presidency. So, Dr. Haas, CFR is a juggernaut when it comes to the world of think tanks. I'm a proud alum of the term member program. Um, it's got a very prominent base in New York prominent base in Washington and really across the country and the world. Can you maybe explain to our listeners the infrastructure alone and sort of how you managed to do that for 20 years? Because um, that's that's a lot of staying power in a in a organization that is at the center of a lot of uh, conversation. And I know Rich is going to want to get into this uh, in, a, in a couple minutes, but that's that's a long time um, at a very an organization with it's not simple. No, it's not simple, but you've also got a lot of help. You've got a, a really good, dedicated staff of 350 people. You've got a, an impressive board of directors, the members, you've got 5,000 members, uh, again, a lot of whom bring a lot to the table. Council's got a big reputation. It's 100 years old now. It was about 80 years old when I got there. And it's, it's got a promise. It's got some real structural advantages. It's genuinely nonpartisan. All these places say they're nonpartisan. They're not. It's independent. It doesn't accept donations from this government or other governments. It publishes the best magazine in the world about the world, which is foreign affairs. It's got great drawing power for, to get people to, to speak or to, to, to work there. It's got, a, it's got a large reputation. So when we decided while I was there that we were going to expand the mission of the council and not just be a resource for people who are already part of the foreign policy conversation, but we wanted to become a force in classrooms around America, publicly around America, uh, the, name, the name helped us. And uh, the reputation, not uniformly, but, but, but in many cases, it, it, it helped us to some the Council on Foreign Relations uh, you know, for the far left and for the far right, their enthusiasm for the council is, shall we say, finite. But I think for a lot of Americans, it's, it's respected. We don't take institutional positions. So it's simply meant to be a, a base from which ideas are put, uh, are, are, are put forward. And again, it was, uh, for me, it was, I mean, you make it sound like it was uh, really, really difficult. Yeah, at times it was, but it was also... It was as good as, you know, I've had two, I've had multiple, I'm like, I'm lucky for a hundred different reasons. I'm blessed for a hundred different reasons, but I've had any number of good jobs. But I would say out of all the jobs I've had out of government, uh, this was by far the, the best. It's also the one I did longest. Other than I've never had a job for more than about four years before. And I, the fact that I did this for 20 speaks for itself. It was really, I thought it was important, but it was also, it was really satisfying, both the, the administrative organizational side as well as the, the content policy side. Dr. Haas, you, uh, in uh, one of your previous jobs, uh, had served as the U.S. coordinator looking at the future of Afghanistan after our invasion, after 9-11, of course. You were there uh, at the State Department policy planning in the wake of 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan. Obviously, you touched on the invasion of Iraq. Here we are, you know, marking 22 years later uh, in this uh, this month, we're starting to see college graduates come to Washington for the first time who weren't born on 9-11. Our military has already had that on the enlisted ranks. Now finally seeing the youngest officers graduating, coming online, again, potentially not born on 9-11. Do you have any fear of this moment or anxiety over where we're going in this generational shift away from an era that really lived and breathed 9-11 and everything that came after it and what that means for lessons learned? where we're heading, history repeating itself. I have a couple of reactions, Rich. I'm actually glad you raised it. And I was thinking about it as recently as yesterday. And the reason is that as I was watching some of the images on television, 
uh, around 9-11. It struck me that if you were, as you said, if someone's 20 years, 30 years old, my own kids are in there, are essentially 30-ish. They have very, very limited memories of 9-11. It made me think of when I was teaching decades and decades ago at the Kennedy School, and I was teaching a class about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which for me, my generation, was a formative moment. And then I stopped because I realized I had all these blank looks on their faces, blanker than usual, I should probably say. <laughs> and I could have been talking about the Peloponnesian Wars. None of these young people was born or it was of age. And so part of my reaction to your point is history can never be assumed. It has to be taught. And you, you've got to constantly explain not just what happened, but why it happened, why it's significant. And 9-11 is part of that. that because for, well, even now, think about it. When you mentioned Vietnam or World War II or the Korean War. I mean, the Korean War is often called the Forgotten War. Well, at the time, it wasn't forgotten. Tens of thousands of Americans lost their lives in it. It was, in some ways, one of the opening battles, if not the opening battle of the Cold War. Uh, but it's a reminder that history has a shelf life and it's up to us to keep it alive. Given the subject of this conversation, you know, what you guys do, that's what Passover is all about. That's why we have the Seder. The whole idea is that the tradition of Judaism, the consciousness of Judaism, identity of Judaism can't be assumed. It's got to be renewed. We tell this story as if you were coming out of Egypt. Why? We want people to feel a connection. And we tell the story and we have symbolic foods. We want young people, we want children to basically discover their Jewish uh, identities. And that to me, in many, it's one of the reasons, by the way, I'm so active in writing and talking about civics. We don't do that as a country. We don't teach Americans. We don't connect Americans with their American identity, with democracy. And it's one of the reasons we're in... Uh, in, 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 in trouble, I would say, uh, as, a, as a society. So for all the reasons you say, I think it's important to talk about 9-11, but I'd say one other thing. Let me put on my foreign policy hat now. I'll take off my uh, preacher hat, which is you can also overlearn the lessons of 9-11. And think about it. Here we are two, roughly two decades later. The centerpiece of American foreign policy, the geographical center of American foreign policy is not the greater Middle East. It's not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. Instead, it's basically Europe and Asia, which is, I would say, where it should be. Those are the two regions of the world where you have major powers, where you have most of the world's population, where you have most of the world's wealth, most of the world's military capability. So I actually think the reaction to 9-11 was in some ways something of a distortion uh, to American foreign policy, that so much of our focus, our energy, so many lives, so many dollars we're committed to the Middle East or the greater Middle East, I think historians of the future will scratch their heads because they will say, there was no way, even if you would quote unquote succeeded there, it would have been transforming. You were ignoring or not focusing on the big, almost, almost the larger tectonic plates of history. So I think in some ways it's important that we not forget 9-11, but also the response to 9-11, we didn't get a lot of things right. And in some ways, I would argue we overreacted to it. I think that's also part of the lesson here. So could you elaborate a little more? I, I tend to agree with you, but, you know, I'll be interested to hear in what ways you think we overreacted um, or overlearned the lessons of 9-11 from a foreign policy standpoint. Well, I'd say in two ways, both what we did and what we didn't do. I, historians will look at the investment we made in Afghanistan. That's much the initial investment, which I think was fine to get rid of the Taliban. But years later, some of the efforts we made to, quote, unquote, nation build there. And they will uh, look at even more the Iraq War, which was linked to 9-11. Should not have been, but it was. And they will say this was a misapplication of American capability. And they will say that was right. And at the same time, I would argue what we didn't do vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis Russia and so forth in terms of dealing with the challenges they pose, doing more to integrate them into the regional and global systems of the day. So I will, uh, my prediction is 
since I plan to write about it, it's a safe prediction in my case, uh, <laughs> historians will write about both the acts of commission and omission, what we did and what we didn't do in response to 9-11. And I think we got a lot of things wrong. And this, by the way, is not a partisan critique. I think this is true of uh, Republican and Democratic uh, administrations alike. Two follow-ups that are very, very related here. One is, even though, and I agree with you that we've gotten distracted on the great power competition, we're getting back to where, where we need to be, look at the Trump administration's national security strategy continuing to now, we're clearly focused more on, on state competitors, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, you know, following in third and fourth, maybe others. But, you know, as uh, some some great scholars of the Middle East have always said, um, I think of some some former U.S. envoys in particular, that you can leave the Middle East, but the Middle East will, will always try to find you. Uh, and in this broader uh, regional construct, we see today, you know, following the withdrawal two years ago from Afghanistan, we're, we're getting the warnings from our military leaders, ISIS-K. We're getting the warnings. Look at the Taliban rule, what they're doing once again inside the population, their, their close uh, connection to al-Qaeda still, siphoning the UN assistance that's going in. Do we have an issue of the potential of sort of the same do-over again, of, of a terrorist platform out of Afghanistan? Will we need to go back and get distracted once again? And how do we prevent that from happening? Well, we had... The answer is it can't be a binary choice. The two choices for American foreign policy cannot be when it comes to the Middle East. We either try to transform it on one hand, turn it into a, uh, a Jeffersonian democracy where everyone's reading you know, the Federalist Papers in Arabic translation. We can't have that as uh, one option. And the other option is we wash our hands of it. But that's in some ways what our foreign policy, I, I don't exaggerate all that much. For years, we pursued a transformational policy. And then we left Afghanistan completely. Uh, I was against both. I think we tried to do much. And then I think we decided to do too little. So I take your point. We cannot wash our hands safely of the Middle East. But that the alternative to that is not getting too involved. And Afghanistan's are perfect. I disagreed with this president. It's no secret. He and I talked about it. People know about that. You know, I was invited to meet with him. And I actually thought that a few years ago, uh, we had reached a pretty good equilibrium in Afghanistan. It wasn't just me saying this. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and others saying we had a, a few thousand Americans. We were no longer involved in combat activities operations. So American casualties had plummeted, plummeted. Uh, the, uh, we had thousands of contractors and we had thousands of NATO troops. And again, it wasn't enough to win the war. By winning the war, you meant defeating the Taliban. It wasn't enough to bring peace, but it was enough to keep the government in power and to avoid a Taliban takeover. I actually thought we had reached a pretty good outcome at an affordable price. And we made, I believe, and this was, again, both administrations. The, the Trump administration negotiated it. The Biden administration implemented it. It's enough to make you think that bipartisanship isn't what it's often cracked up to be. Both administrations, I would argue, got it wrong. And I fear you could be right. The day may come when Afghanistan could again become a terrorism training ground or venue not just locally. And that could, and by the way, locally could be really bad. Why? Because look at its immediate neighbors. It's this place called Pakistan, which has tens of, tens of nuclear weapons. And Pakistan is already a failing state. It's not a failed state, but it's, it's, it's shaky. And what worries me is that groups could operate out of Afghanistan to destabilize Pakistan, ironically enough, just as groups operated out of Pakistan for decades to destabilize Afghanistan. Uh, things could you know, come around. So, yeah, I worry about it. I worry about the lurches of American foreign policy from extreme ambition to distancing ourselves completely. We need to have you know, sometimes gray area foreign policies in between foreign policy, which are sustainable at a reasonable cost or preferable. But it's uh, that doesn't seem to be our, our pension. You know, one of the premises behind Rich and I doing this show together me as a former Obama uh, appointee, Rich as a former Trump appointee, is to sort of 
remind remind each other and remind our listeners how to talk to one another. Um, because as a nation, you know, we seem to be, be forgetting that, right? And so I guess and as it relates to the foreign policy sphere. Did you guys need therapy here for me? Yeah, I know, right? Um, <laughs> Rich and I are actually are pretty good at it. You know, I tell people all the time that Rich Goldberg is a very good man and a patriot. He's just wrong about everything. Um, but But I guess in the foreign policy space, how do we get back to being able to talk to one another um, and, and have this civil dialogue w- without, you know, vilifying one another? I mean, I know because uh, you've as somebody who's you know, served Republicans and Democrats and, and, and uh, you know, you get you get heat from all sides um, on the regular. How do we do that? Well, there's just no sacred cows anymore. I mean, it used to be 100 and nothing votes on Iran sanctions, you know, Israel, Iran. At least that was sort of like a safe harbor where everybody came together. There were certain other in the anti-communism days. First of all, I don't think foreign policy in this sense is different than domestic policy. And, and, and by this, let me just explain what I mean. Uh, a lot of our conversations domestically are not wildly civil when people are discussing things there. So there's nothing unique about the division, the polarization, everything else you want. Now, there, there may have been a tradition to some extent. I think it's exaggerated a little bit of quote unquote politics stopping at the water's edge. But we had fierce debates about American entry into World War I and World War II. We had fierce debates after uh, World War II about many uh, issues, obviously Vietnam being the, the most fierce. And, and in some cases, we didn't have sufficiently fierce debates, I would say, about the Iraq War. Uh, so, and even now where we have, by, I just talked about Afghanistan, we had bipartisanship there, a desire to get, I'm not sure that was right. We have a bipartisan, we have bipartisan hostility to trade. I think that's deeply misguided. Both parties, I believe, are deeply flawed on that. There's right now a bipartisan, a heavy degree of overlap on China. And I actually think some of it is too anti-China, too muscular. And there's almost uh, a competition as to who can be tougher, who can be harder on China, to the point where it's become politically difficult to introduce much of any nuance into our relationship uh, there. So I don't think bipartisanship is necessarily the definition of success. The Gulf of Tonkin you know, resolution passed pretty overwhelmingly last I checked the numbers. Uh, most people came to regret it. Ironically enough, the vote on the Gulf War, about American involvement in the Gulf War, this is a vote in late, get my years right, 1990, early 91, that barely passed. The vote on American support, supporting the Bush administration, Bush 41, to get to send U.S. forces to liberate Kuwait, barely passed the Senate. To his credit, Sam Nunn, who was probably the senior Democrat on defense issues, later said it was the biggest mistake of his career not supporting the inter, you know, American military intervention. But my point is simply that then we had an absence of bipartisanship and it was wrong, I would argue. And years later with the Iraq war, we had tremendous bipartisanship. And again, it was wrong because it was in favor of the intervention. So I don't, I don't see agreement on foreign policy as a goal. I think smart foreign policy ought to be a goal. And where we disagree, as you said, we want to have civil conversation. We don't, that's true of any public policy issue. So right now, whether you think we ought to do what we're doing vis-a-vis Ukraine, or you think the latest with Iran is good or bad or with take your, you know, choose your topic. There's an unlimited number of topics of what we should be doing on climate. I don't expect there to be agreement or consensus. Uh, what I'd like there to be is intelligent, pretty civil debate. And people should be careful if they're in power about changing policies radically, because whatever the case on the merits, I think ultimately a lack of consistency or reliability undermines American influence in the world and it's corrosive for our relationships. But again, my goal is not agreement per se. My goal is to build support for intelligent policies. You mentioned Ukraine and Russia as one of those that have become major political footballs as we're now in presidential politics and we have still more votes yet to come potentially in the Congress for additional supplemental assistance for Ukraine. Uh, you reportedly took part in a what they call 1.5 track. Uh, this is uh, when you have a non-U.S. official meeting with with a foreign official. I think it was uh, Sergey Lavrov, the foreign minister. 
uh, and some other uh, distinguished uh, former diplomats. Uh, can you talk about what that meeting was like? your perspective on where the Russians are at. And, and certainly there's some controversy around having such a meeting and, and sort of how you respond to that. I'm, I'm well aware of the controversy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe such meetings are fine. Uh, I'm not, I, I never think that meeting with people or diplomacy is a favor. Maybe because I've spent a lot of my career as a diplomat. I see diplomacy as a tool. Uh, I see military force as a tool. I see economic sanctions as tools. Uh, these, these are ways in which you advance your interest. Now, I don't represent the government, and I didn't in that meeting. Uh, my view is simply we have all sorts of issues to discuss with Russia, uh, from the nuclear relationship to, to the war. And for individuals such as myself who have experience, I don't see anything at all wrong, and I think it's healthy. You get a better idea of what they think. They get a better idea of uh, public opinion here. I uh, you know, obviously let the administration know before and after what I was doing. I think for them it's useful to get certain readouts. I have zero idea what, if any, impact I or we had may have had on uh, Russian thinking. It wasn't a negotiation. No one is, quote, unquote, negotiating for Ukraine or anything else. But, uh, again, I, I don't see where exchanges are per se problematic. And in terms of you know where the war is going and all that, uh, I think the Russian position is they're they're playing for time. They believe that time is their friend. That sooner or later, Western and will 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 fade. They're obviously very interested in the November twenty four American presidential election. And you know, one of the differences in our politics is, for most of our history, the gap between the two major party candidates on most issues was pretty small. To use a football analogy, which is dangerous these days in New York. Uh, Presidential candidates have historically operated within the 40-yard lines. Maybe one was on one side of the field, the other was the other, but what they had in common was greater than what distinguished them. That's not true anymore. If the candidate is Donald Trump, the candidate is Nikki Haley or someone like that, I think, again, will be much more traditional. I don't think the gap between Joe Biden and Nikki Haley on Ukraine is meaningful. Uh, But between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it's enormous. And that's one of the differences, that such a big issue could have such a uh, big difference. So I think for the Russians, they'd love to see what happens in 14 months, hoping um, that um, the United States essentially embarks on a totally different uh, trajectory. So I think it'll be very hard to settle things before then. Ukraine at the moment, in any case, is not disposed to compromise. They're still hoping to accomplish their war goals through military liberation. Um, on record as being... I favor it. I'm just skeptical they'll be able to do it. It's not a question of whether it's desirable. It's a question of whether it's doable. I'm doubtful. So I think sooner or later, we will. there's a good chance we'll get to a point of uh, where the diplomatic dimension of this conflict will come to the fore. We're not there yet. Uh, and I still think we have a lot more, we have considerable more uh, fighting to, to come, which is enormously costly to both, you know, to, to both countries, to Ukraine and Russia. But uh, to use a word I once developed years ago in a book, um, the situation isn't ripe for diplomacy. For diplomacy to work, you have to have leaders who are both willing and able to compromise for, uh, in this case, a ceasefire or a peace. And I don't believe we have that. Uh, we're, we're some time away from that. Richard, let me ask you this. Do you ever think there's a point where a foreign leader has gone too far and should be sort of beyond the pale for think tanks and whatnot. And I know that this is something that I'm sure has come up a bunch in your, in your former job. Um, and I, I don't, uh, I'm interested in just asking the question because, you know, um, is there a foreign leader we should just not meet with? I tend to think you meet, you, you know, I'm from the school of thought where, you know, if you only met with your friends, uh, it would be a, sh- a short amount of meetings, but um, I know Rich has some other thoughts. I'm just interested to hear your thought process. Like when you're inviting somebody to the Council on Foreign Relations to speak during UNGA week, right? There are lots of people who are, um, many would say, are beyond the pale who get invited, and and that's part of the mission. But how do you how do you well, like would would you would you meet with Vladimir Putin right now? Would you legitimize Vladimir Putin as an example? Well, let's just go through it historically. I was president of the council when we probably had one of our more controversial meetings was with uh, uh, President Ahmadinejad of Iran. I remember that, yeah. In my view, it was the right thing to do. Again, um, it's not legitimizing him. It's not endorsing him. He exists. He has power. Iran's a a nation state. 
he's the elected president of that nation state. So sure, I want him to hear firsthand what involved Americans say and think, which is what we did. And it gives us a better sense of, of this individual. So I would, uh, I have no problem with that. You know, Putin, you've got other problems, it goes to the legal thing, but as a matter of principle, yeah, I, I believe it's fine to meet with Xi Jinping. I believe it's fine to meet with the president of North Korea. I believe it's fine to meet with the president of Iran. Again, these are not endorsements. This is simply a recognition that these people are actors with capacity and they, they, they make a difference. That's why they're in the UN. That's why they're invited to the G20. Uh, that's why, again, you've got to take them into account. You, you, you know, it was, it was Itzach Rabin who said, you know, yeah, it gets a bit of what Jared was saying. You don't make peace with your friends. You make them with your enemies. And that was his justification for, for sitting down with, with Yasser Arafat. And so I just, I, so yeah, I believe in that kind of diplomatic involvement. And, and for people who think it's immoral, well, what? Okay, but again, you can stand on principle. But I want I'm, I'm interested potentially in certain results. And if I could, with a, if the United States, whether with with Putin in power, so what? We're not going to negotiate with Putin to end this war. To me, that makes no sense. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily agree to his terms. You obviously don't. But the idea that we would not have a negotiated outcome to this war if Russia were willing to have it with Vladimir Putin representing Russia, that to me would be would be self-defeating. What, you're going to demand regime change in Russia as a precondition for ending the war? Well, then get ready for a really long war. I just I just don't understand that line of thinking. This is foreign policy can't be a, a morality test in this way. You've got to weigh it against practical uh, outcomes and consequences of, uh, of certain positions. But there are moments of morality in our foreign policy and through our history. I mean, Adolf Hitler was 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 evil. We, we would not have hosted Adolf Hitler at a think tank event in the middle of World War II and said, well, we got we to gotta understand the man. We got we to gotta show him what we think about the concentration camps. Well, again, we're at war with Adolf. You know, you're asking a situation where the United States is at war with the country. That seems to be qualitatively different. Where we're, well, but, yeah, but that said, think about it. The United States met with North Korean officials when we were at war with North Korea and Americans were being killed. Uh, so we've done it at, at, at other times. So I just think you have to be, you have to think it through. So, and you know, Hitler, I'm always nervous or uneasy with, with Hitler examples, just because he was a, something of a historical one-off, shall we say, thank God. Um, but, but look at Mao, look at Stalin. These were people who were responsible for the deaths of enormous numbers of human beings. Possibly you know, as many or more than Hitler, just saying. But co- concrete example, right? So reportedly, CFR might be hosting Ibrahim Raisi in the next couple of weeks as, as he's coming for the UN General Assembly, president of Iran. And this is a man who they call him the hangman of Tehran, has put to death you know, countless Iranians. But put that aside, he is currently today involved in the plots that continue going on to murder, assassinate Mike Pompeo. John Bolton, Brian Hook, others, if what somebody who had your former job at the State Department, uh, try to kidnap people out of New York where he will be visiting in Masi Alinejad, uh, supplying weapons to to Russia. Obviously, I guess that is more geopolitical perhaps than than actual threat to the U.S. He's sanctioned by the United States. He's subject to secondary sanctions, and. He will obviously use this as as a platform to legitimize himself, certainly in his propaganda. Oh, so so but what are you worried about? Let me turn it around to you. So if you meet with him, if, if people, the, if the Council on Foreign Relations or some other organization were to meet with him. Again, it, it doesn't change the reality. He's the president of Iran. It's a chance to challenge him on all the things you just mentioned. Every one of those issues totally fair game to come up to challenge right it's a way for him to understand the strength of american conviction on these uh issues so i don't see it as a sign of weakness i would i like it when foreign leaders come here 
and they, you know, a lot of them have distorted views of America uh, and about our divisions and so forth. So I, I like it when they see that people of all stripes feel as adamant as we do that what, a lot of what Iran doing is, is truly is truly wrong or unacceptable from our point of view. So I don't have problems with the meeting that that communicates uh, that. And it's it's not it's one thing to give people a podium where they're not challenged, but this is a private, if this is, if this is happening, I'm no longer president of the council. It would be a private meeting. There would be a exchange. I don't see where he walks away the beneficiary from that necessarily. Richard, can I ask you a, a follow-up on Iran? Um, what do you make of the recently reported uh, deal that will, that will free six American hostages in exchange for unfreezing of uh, billions of dollars in, in Iranian assets um, and without really addressing in any way the, the nuclear situation. What do, you, what do you make of that as somebody who's followed this issue really closely for a long time? I have a couple of reactions. One is, even though it doesn't directly involve the nuclear issue, my own reading of the nuclear issue is it's being talked about. In the old days of the U.S.-Soviet relationship, we used to talk about arms control without agreements. That's what I think this is. I think increasingly what we have is a U.S.-Iranian dialogue. This, by the way, is my analysis. I don't know this for a fact. Where, where neither side wants to reach agreements, because then agreements have to go through certain legal political processes and they have to be defended in the court of public opinion. But instead, what I believe is the two sides want to have, how would I call them, arrangements. And that we move towards a situation where the Iranians don't do certain things in the nuclear realm say, enrich above a certain level or a certain amount, and in return, quote, unquote, uh, we would not, we would undo certain sanctions. And this to me, these are implicit or de facto agreements. But again, it gives each side a bit of wiggle room. They don't have to defend it publicly. So I think that's the larger context of this deal, of what's the reported deal. Uh, look, these, these arrangements, uh, I don't like it. I would have thought it would have been enough to do a prisoner or exchange because you had Iranians as well as Americans being released, as I understand it. It's not quite clear to me why the uh, billions of dollars had to be introduced as well. On the other hand, if it's true, big if, that you know, this is obviously Iranian money that's been parked, as I understand, in South Korea for oil that was purchased. It's now being put through banks in the Middle East and it's going to be only used for the purchase of food and humanitarian. So if that actually can be monitored, and that's true, then it seems to me, if in the larger context, it's something that we could live with. If it turns out, though, also that there's more American prisoners taken, then then I'd say this sort of thing then becomes nuts. Um, I remember once when I was working at the White House with Bush the father, where we began the conversation, and if you remember in his inaugural address, he said goodwill would be met with goodwill. And the Iranians released some uh, Americans and being held in Lebanon, if I remember correctly. And then we didn't do anything in response. And I remember being challenged by the Iranian foreign minister when I met him. And I said, well, yeah, you got points for letting Americans go. But then you took new Americans prisoner. So on net, you had just as American, many American prisoners. It wasn't. How, how, in, how, how in the world could we ever come to reward you for that? So I think this is also a test of the Iranians, and I think we'll learn something going forward. So, so I, it's, it's all a windy way of saying I'm uneasy about this, uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily go to the mat to oppose it. But I'm, I'm, I'm wary, I'm uneasy, and I want to see what happens both with the, the dispensation of the money and, and future Iranian behavior, both in terms of taking people prisoner and in terms of the whole nuclear uh, arrangement. I agree with you on your analysis that uh, this is actually just a larger nuclear deal that, that, that's going on. You, you wouldn't have $6 billion attached to, to five individuals. This is $6 billion from South Korea. They already had $10 billion from Iraq. There, there, there's larger things going on here. And obviously, we, we saw the, the proof of the pudding. glad we things to agree on, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we have plenty to agree on, plenty to agree on. Uh, we have, obviously, the Obama administration had this ideal of you know $1.7 billion in 2015 to the JCPOA. And unfortunately, these are more Americans that we're getting out again, because in fact, they did take more hostages. And now we see Russia obviously engaged in that in that tactic, maybe, maybe China in the future under their SBN. I also make a strategic point. And again, I'm not privy to the details on this. 
when I look at the world right now, I would rather not have a major strategic crisis in the Middle East. I want us to be focusing on Europe, helping Ukraine. I want us, we've got to do much, much more to build up against China. I do want to keep Iran below a certain threshold on the nuclear program. So that to me argues for perhaps a bit more flexibility than we might normally suggest if this were in isolation. I just think given the strategic moment, we got a lot on our plate. Yeah, and obviously they're still producing 60%. The, the stockpile is expanding. They're, they're constructing an underground facility near Natan. So, so we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, j- jury's out. Um, I, I may have my, my verdict in hand, but, it, but I need uh, 11 of my, uh, my peers. Uh, I do want to ask you one other policy question before we move into our lightning round. Uh, Saudi-Israel normalization. Uh, we um, obviously are watching this closely. It's a complicated dance, a, a lot of moving pieces on a defense treaty, nuclear cooperation, demand for enrichment, Palestinian concessions, interests politically for the Biden administration injected into this. There's domestic concerns in Israel. MBS has, has, has his strategic interests uh, alongside playing China against us. How do you see all this coming together? Do you think there will be a deal this year? Well, there's two different questions. One is, will it come together? And two, if it does come together along the lines that have been reported, is it something one would welcome? Whether it comes together, seems to me it's tough. I would say the odds are against it. I mean, we know what the Saudis want. They want a security guarantee and they want uh, a nuclear program. What I don't know is how unconditional they want the security guarantee and how autonomous they want the nuclear program. So let's just, and I'm uneasy about both. It's one of the reasons my enthusiasm for this is finite. Secondly, uh, what the Israelis want is normalization. And what the Americans want is progress on the Palestinian front. They want to put, in particular, they want greater self-governance for the Palestinians and they want greater impediments to new settlements. It's not clear to me the Israelis could live with what the United States is going to want. So there's the question of, will this come together? Can we agree with the Saudis on the nuclear and the security side? Can we uh, agree with the Israelis on the Palestinian side? Maybe. And that's obviously what Jake Sullivan and company are spending so much time doing. I think it's tough, though, particularly given this Israeli government. If we could agree, I'd still be very uneasy. Uh, I'm nervous about giving the Saudis a security guarantee, what they might do with it. I'm nervous about their nuclear program. I'm I'm not confident that this Israeli government would actually implement any agreements they made on settlements or anything like that. So call me skeptical. So at the moment, you know, it's one of those things you'll have to wait and see what the details are, but I lean against. I wouldn't say I'm I'm skeptical it will happen. And I'm not sure I want it to happen based upon what I know, but I'll be uncharacteristically open-minded and see what the details are. But, uh, but at the moment, I'm, I, I call me uneasy. Dr. Oz, thank you. Thank you for making us smarter on the policy issues. Now we want to get a, uh, we do something called the lightning round where we ask you a couple of questions to get, you, get to know you a little bit better as a person. So I'm going to go first. Favorite Yiddish word or expression and profanity is allowed as long as it's in Yiddish. <laughs> well, I've got two I like. One is apparent felling, because I fell. Spilkus. I got I have serious I have basically I have extreme spilkus. So, so I totally get it. And uh, it's 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 a it's a word I live by. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite Jewish food? Obviously we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah uh, and the holiday season. Love more than I should on Friday nights, but my kids make fresh challah. And there's very few things in life that are, when the challah comes out of you know, the oven on a Friday night, that is a, it may not be good for your waistline, but it is, it is, it is, it is a good moment in life. If they started a business in New York, it could be the Council on Challah Relations. Oh, Reggie. Oh, oh, Reg. I think don't it would quit. do well. Whatever your day job is, don't quit it. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> marketing <laughs> Marketing is not your... your, your I'm your telling group. you, there's a few Facebook groups. They'll do right. well. They'll do so, well. So, Dr. Haas, two-parter for me. Um, favorite Secretary of State of all time and favorite New York Yankee of all time? A New York Yankee is easy. Uh, I grew up with Mickey Mantle. And by the way, one of the great debates I grew up with was my father and grandfather 
arguing over Mickey Mantle versus Joe DiMaggio. Well, you're like, that, but the bigger debate at the time was Mickey Mantle versus Willie Mays uh, versus Duke Snyder. Because you had uh, the three, that sort of thing, or Joe DiMaggio versus the other two. Right. But for me, so I always uh, wore number seven when I kind of did my pre-Little League stuff and all that. And because he had it all. He had the, the power, the speed. Uh, he was just unique. And what's really sad, you know, he had the injuries. And then he stayed on too long. When he finally finished, his batting average career was below 300 really made me sad. It was actually when I thought about how long to stay at the council, you'll think I'm nuts. It was one of the things I thought of. You don't, you don't stay too long. Most people stay too long in jobs. And not to compare myself to him, but it was just somewhere in the back of my mind. You very rarely get criticized in life for leaving too soon, uh, often for for staying too long. Well, I, I just went on so long. I forgot the other half of your question. I apologize. Favorite Secretary of State of all time. Uh, well, that's interesting. The favorite... Uh, Secretary of State. I mean, the one I work with the most, who out of all the Secretaries of State, was Jim Baker. I think the three great modern Secretaries of State, I would argue, were uh, you know, George Marshall, maybe Ford, Dean Acheson, Henry Kissinger, and Jim Baker. The only one I worked with a lot was, was Secretary Baker and just was really impressive. But my favorite foreign policy official was none of the above. My favorite foreign policy official in the modern era for the United States is Brent Scowcroft. The only person to have been national security advisor twice and worked closely, obviously, with both, with both Kissinger and Baker, and was just a prince of a human being. And I think better than anybody else got the national security advisor job right, the balance of being a uh, counselor to the president, yet the person who ensured the integrity of the, of the process and the system. And I think Brent Scowcroft is the gold standard of how to perform that job. And I regret never having been able to interview Colin Powell on this program because he would have had probably the best Yiddish in the lightning round uh, of anybody who has served yeah. as secretary. I heard it every State. now and then. Every now and then, yeah, I, I was a. Uh, I both heard it and I was a recipient of it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Richard Haas, thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for having me. Shana Tova. Shana Tova to you, to you uh, and your family. You and your mishpachas. And uh, may it be a good and healthy and sweet year for us all. Amen. 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 Well, Rich, that was great. Uh, it's feel It's always great when we're sort of with one of these living legends of the foreign policy space. Uh, and was literally in the rooms and can give us the the contours and the stuff we may not read about every day. Um, to all of our listeners out there, uh, I want to wish everybody a Shana Tova, a happy new year and a sweet new year uh, and all good things. May you all be inscribed in the book of life uh, and only uh, joyful things in the future. Amen. Amen. Shana Tova Umetuka from all of us. Now, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, until next year, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.